Do you like history? Do you like revolutionaries? Do you like period films that feel intensely contemporary? Wait, didn't we do that one already? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess if you like all those things, you'll like our last episode about Judas and the Black Messiah. But you'll probably also like this episode. You know what? This movie is so good, I think it deserves its own intro. Indeed. Let's do it again. Do you like courtroom dramas? Do you like razor-sharp dialogue? Do you like a movie that is bursting at the seams with big-name actors? Then maybe, just maybe, you'll like the 2020 historical courtroom drama The Trial of the Chicago 7. I'm Andy Potter. And I'm Aaron Potter. And you're listening to AP Approved. Well, welcome back, everybody. We are so glad to be recording another episode today. And we are also so excited about the Academy Awards coming up on April 25th. Woot woot. Yeah, so uh, the movie we're talking about today, The Trial of the Chicago 7, has been nominated for a number of awards, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, might as well mention, um, since we're looking forward to the Oscars, some of the other big contenders. This is actually the third Oscar nominee we've reviewed on this podcast. For Best Picture. For Best Picture, specifically, yes. Uh, So we've talked about Promising Young Woman and Judas and the Black Messiah, and now we're talking about The Trial of the Chicago 7, all of which are nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. As they deserve. Very much so. Uh, The other nominees for that are The Sound of Metal, uh, Mank, which I have seen. That one's on Netflix, and I highly recommend it. Minari, which I hear good things about. The Father, and Nomadland, which I'm also looking forward to seeing, haven't gotten around to yet. So we're looking forward to watching a few more of these and perhaps doing an episode later where we sort of review the Academy Awards once they happen. Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm kind of pulling for uh, a Promising Young Woman or Judas and the Black Messiah yeah, for Best yeah. Picture. I really, really like both of those. And I think that's a, you know, I think artistically those are good choices, but also good socially conscious choices as well. It's hard to say which one I would rather have. I know. <laughs> uh possibly a promising young woman i feel like it's got a little less love from the awards so far but only a very little less right um so i'd be very happy with either one definitely so why don't we get into the stats of uh the trial of chicago 7 and you can tell us how it's been received so far good so yeah it's been received quite well uh we always do our rotten tomatoes score it's got an 89 percent on the tomato meter with the critics on rotten tomatoes Uh, The critic's consensus reads, An actor's showcase, enlivened by its topical, fact-based story, The Trial of the Chicago 7 plays squarely and compellingly to Aaron Sorkin's strengths. And if you don't know, Aaron Sorkin is the writer and director on this picture. And he's a playwright, too, right? Yep, he's done plays. He's he's most known as a writer. He's recently gotten into directing, but he's primarily a writer, and that shows through here. If you've ever seen um, The Social Network... That's another one that was written, not directed by him, but written by him. And again, has that iconic kind of razor sharp, witty dialogue, intensely intelligent. Um, this movie has already won a number of awards. So let's talk about some of the rewards it has been nominated for or is receiving. Let me just pull those up. So as we said, it's nominated for Best Picture at this year's Oscars. It's also nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Sacha Baron Cohen, who we'll talk about. 
Uh, Best Original Screenplay by Aaron Sorkin. Best Cinematography. Best Original Song, a song called Hear My Voice, which is in the credits. And Best Film Editing. It's also been nominated for three awards at the BAFTAs, the British Academy Film Awards, the British Oscars, uh, for Best Film, Best Original Screenplay by Sorkin, and Best Editing. And then at the Golden Globes, which have happened now, uh, it was nominated for a number of things, uh, including uh, Best Drama, Best Supporting Actor for Cohen, uh, Best Director and Best Screenplay for Sorkin. It won Best Screenplay and Best Original Song. And then at the SAG Awards, it won a Outstanding Cast in a Motion Picture for the, as we already said, highly star-studded cast. So lots of uh, recognition there. The only... Those are the two big awards. It's won the one SAG Award for the Screen Actors Guild for the cast, and then Best Screenplay for Sorkin. And from what Oscar buzz I'm hearing, I wouldn't all be surprised if it gets Best uh, Screenplay at the Oscars, just because, again, it's so intelligent and witty. It's really, really good in that regard. I don't know that it's going to win anything else, but we'll see. Uh, I loved it. I don't... Yeah. I'm okay with it not winning anything else. I think it deserves recognition, but I would like something else to win Best Picture, I think. There's just so many good ones this year. But it's a it's in a contention with a lot of really good films. It looked like on Rotten Tomatoes it was even a little bit uh, even more popular among the um, just general population. Yeah, too. I think it was like a ninety one amongst just mm-hmm. general viewers. I really enjoyed watching it. It was it was really cool. Unlike a lot of the movies we've been reviewing, we didn't see this one in the theaters. This is a Netflix film, so if you have Netflix and you probably do. Uh, <laughs> You live in 2021. You probably have Netflix. You wouldn't have survived the past year without it. We know. (laughs) Um, You can go check it out there. That other movie, Mank, that I mentioned, which is about the writing of the great classic film Citizen Kane, is also on there. So uh, that's how I've seen that one. Um, So both of those are on Netflix. I encourage you to check them out. You don't even need to go out to the theater to see these. So really, I think one of the defining uh, features of this movie is that it has a, just a giant ensemble cast full mm-hmm. of really big names, a lot of interesting characters, almost too many to keep track of sometimes. It's hard to remember all their names. <laughs> so Actually, I made a list. Yep, and I got Wikipedia <laughs> pulled up here to help me too. So I thought, I don't know, maybe we might have to introduce you to all the characters before we get into it so that we don't confuse ourselves or you too much (laughs) yeah or at least to the seven and a couple of the other key players here yeah so the chicago seven uh, were a group of activists who were all protesting the war in vietnam and they were really not meant to be together like they didn't plan to be together they just all planned to be in one place at one time and they were all arrested as um conspirators and that was really the question of the trial did they conspire to come to chicago and to invoke uh, a violent riot Mm -hmm. or did they not or that's what they're being tried for because the the justice department kind of looked at it and like did they do anything illegal nothing they did was really illegal except for some very minor like trespassing charges but then under nixon when nixon comes to the office, uh, his Justice Department really wanted to kind of uh, make a, a statement about the far left and the radicals opposing the war, and uh, they tried them for inciting violence, for conspiracy to incite violence, which was kind of pretty dodgy and definitely not true. Uh, but there was, you know, if you spin the evidence the right way, you could make it look that way. So that's what they were all being tried for. This all happens, by the way, this very famous big protest happens 
at the Democratic National Convention in 1968. What a year. Which was a crazy year. I remember high school history learning about this. I remember hearing about the riots at the um, 68 Democratic Convention in Chicago. I didn't know all the story. I don't really remember talking about the trial of the seven afterwards, but I remember hearing that there were these big riots that were a really big deal. Um, so it was interesting to learn more about what actually happened there in much more detail and the rather dramatic aftermath. Yeah, so the whole deal was that it was during the Democratic National Convention. A lot of people were there and a lot of eyes were on that um, that place in Chicago. And so all of the different groups of activists wanted to come to Chicago. They wanted to protest in front of the building where the DNC was happening. That was obviously not allowed. Um, they ended up in a park and uh there's a real video there's a whole bunch of um actual news footage that starts off the movie which is really good and it shows oh, yeah, kind of the neat. turmoil of the 60s um with you know martin luther king speaking out against the vietnam war and then being assassinated bobby kennedy speaking out about the assassination of king and then him being assassinated you know the intensifying war effort in vietnam uh, all kinds of stuff and then it ends by showing a bunch of clips about the build-up to the democratic national convention and then the last clip is a real clip from walter cronkite saying the democratic national convention is about to start in what can simply must be called a police state uh, because there were so many police and national guard on high alert for these protests and it was just a really really tense scary situation for a bunch of people who wanted to just protest peacefully um, but it got way out of hand because people were so hyped up and freaked out. Is this sounding familiar yet? Right. Again, intensely contemporary. Uh, this is a very, very timely film dealing with youth who feel out of touch um, from the older generation and feel politically disenfranchised and are very disappointed with the political system and people who are protesting um, and uh, police brutality and uh, you know people taking sides about to, to what extent is protesting okay and um you know and there's a racial component which is not super super central to the story but is there as it story, always is as it always is in the background of american culture um so there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on here so let's run through uh sort of our our list of names that we got here we've got um I guess, first of all, there's a group called Students for a Democratic Society, uh, mostly led by a guy named Tom Hayden, who's played by Eddie Redmayne. The delightful, ever-charming Eddie Redmayne. Yes. If you've seen him as Newt's commander or as... Marius in Les Mis, mm -hmm. or just many other. It's He's just wonderful. He's, He's always great. good. Then you got Reddy Davis, played by Alex Sharp. Which, if you haven't seen Alex Sharp, you should watch a movie called The Hustle, starring Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson, because it's hilarious, and he's very good in that. Didn't get good reviews, but we enjoyed it. We enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> he's quite good. He's like a tech bro with a little more to him than you expect. <laughs> yeah. And he's it, quite charming. But in this one, he's, he's also uh, a member of the Students for a Democratic Society alongside Tom Hayden. And then the other really kind of biggest name in here is Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, who had a good year. He was also in a second Borat movie, which I right. haven't seen and don't really care to. But uh, he plays Abby Hoffman, this kind of hippie leader of the Youth International Party called the Yippies. And they're interesting because there's the Students for the Democratic Society who are very like straight-laced, serious, political uh, young people. And then there's the Yippies who are, are hippies and like, you know, 
drugs and doing crazy stuff and all kinds of strangeness and weirdness. And they don't, in particular, Abby and Tom Hayden do not get along. And a big part of the story is how they're on the same side, but they really clash and they're very, very different people. Yeah. And then Abby Hoffman is joined by Jerry Rubin, who's played by Jeremy Strong. And they sort of make a a fun little pair of long-haired, headband-wearing, drug-using hippies. (laughs) And they're hysterical. They're They're so so funny funny the whole time. Like, the things they say. And, like, Jerry Rubin in particular is just, like, stoned the whole movie. The whole thing. And just, like, hey, man. Uh, He talks about, like, Jack and the Beanstalk at one point. And he's like, yeah, it worked, man. Like, the, uh, the Beanstalk grew. There was a giant up there. I don't remember what happened after that. Maybe the boy got eaten. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I just like so out of it and making funny comments the whole time. It's they're, they're a wonderful comedic chaotic duo. Another interesting thing about Abby Hoffman in the movie is that he often does these um, stand-up mm-hmm. uh, performances or or speaking gigs, and he tells the stories of both what happened in the park when the riots happened and also what's going on during the trial in sort of a really funny, sarcastic way. And they kind of layer that. They layer his words with other exposition, other testimonies in sort of a really interesting way. Again, what makes the screenplay so good and the reason it won the Golden Globes and the reason I won't be at all surprised if it wins the Oscar for screenplay is... As we said, the the dialogue is witty and razor sharp and very intelligent. That's Sorkin's trademark. But as you just said, the way it's layered, the mix of Abby's stand-up and the trial and them planning back at their HQ. Um, and there's like three or four different places where the story gets communicated. And we don't really know much of what happened unless you know the history behind it at the beginning of the story. And we kind of get the whole thing more or less in chronological order, but layered in all these different ways to, you know, it's really convoluted. You, you know, it takes a really smart guy like Aaron Sorkin to kind of get it all organized uh, and just really well done mm-hmm. with lots of jokes all mixed in and very funny comments. So that's four so far. So we've got three more uh, in the Chicago 7. Then there's uh, David Dellinger, who's a an adult, a full-grown man. The others are all young people. <laughs> I think they're all adults. They're but, all adults, you know. <laughs> but he's the only one that seems like an adult. <laughs> yeah, he one has my, like kids and stuff. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite moments is when they have to go get one of the other members out of jail and Abby, the leader of the hippies. Is like says to Dillinger, like, I don't care any money. Do you have any? Yes, I'm a grown man. <laughs> of course I have money. <laughs> so David Dillinger, played by John Carroll Lynch, who is also excellent in the movie Fargo. Uh, he's uh, Margie's husband, who's just adorable and sweet. Uh, but he's the leader of the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam, or MOB for short. I was going to say, that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, a, that's why they have to shorten it to MOB. <laughs> His big thing, I think, is... Uh, non-violence mm-hmm. he is kind of a conscientious objector yep he's the oldest so he was like a conscientious objector during world war ii and stuff not even just uh, during vietnam mm-hmm. so he's very very big into non-violence and peaceful protest and then our last two are sort of the forgotten <laughs> activists uh their names are lee weiner and john Freunds. lee weiner is played by noah robbins who we all recognize as um, an actor who's in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, a guy named Zach, who's just hilarious. So for the whole movie, like, we couldn't remember everybody's names. So I just always referred to Lee Weiner as Zach. (laughs) And by the way, if you haven't seen Kimmy Schmidt, go check out that show. It's delightful on Netflix. It's wonderful. 
But yeah, he's the very awkward, nerdy, tech-savvy guy in that show. <laughs> and he's not quite as awkward in this, but he's sort of like sitting off to the side making funny comments. Yeah, the whole time. Um, and then uh, he's friends with John Froines, who's the seventh member of the Chicago 7. And those two, as we, at the beginning, they're kind of like wondering why they're even there because they're not like the leaders. They're just like members of these organizations. I think they're members of mm -hmm. uh, Hayden's SDS. Yeah. Um, and they're kind of like, why are we here? And they eventually figure out one of the other defendants. I think Abby points out to them, like, you're there is kind of like the gimme. Like, they'll let you off for sure. And then the the jury won't feel bad about giving us harsher sentences. And they feel kind of like, oh, man. No, that, doesn't, that doesn't feel good. I think that's the point where one of them, John Freund, says to uh, Lee, uh, "What you know what we're doing here? And Lee says, I don't really know, but this is the Academy Awards of protest. And as far as I'm concerned, it's an honor just to be nominated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's the first of Zach's little witty asides that mean nothing, <laughs> but are just great. Right, right. And later on, somebody asks, uh, I think Freund's again asks him, do you know what's going on? It's like... It's been years since I've known what's going on. Honestly, that was my favorite quote in the whole movie. Almost, It was so funny. It's a very good quote for the 60s, and it's a very good quote for the 2020s as well. Yep. Like, uh, as we've said before, there's an awful lot about this that feels very contemporary and relatable, and that's a big part of it, like the confusion and the chaos of our current time is not far, is different, but not far different in many ways from exactly. the social upheaval of the 60s. Another thing about Weiner and Freund's, uh, they're very forgettable uh, considering how much we're talking about them, but they are the last ones who are still alive of the seven. And I actually just read something in the Chicago Tribune about um, Weiner and an interview, and they asked him if he'd seen the movie, and he said he thinks it's the best one that they've made about the trial. Mm, so That's good. That's pretty great. I heard that. He enjoyed it. And then what's complicated about the seven is it was originally the Chicago Eight. Yes. And the eighth member is a guy named Bobby Seale, who was one of the two chairmen of the Black Panther Party. Sound familiar? So again, connections to our last movie. And actually, our last movie was primarily about the... Um, uh, deputy chairman. Deputy of chairman Panthers. of the Black Panthers in Chicago. And this movie is taking place in Chicago, Fred Hampton, who actually is a character in this movie. And he's sort of like uh, Bobby Seale's friend who's trying to help him and stuff like that. And this movie even portrays... It uh, doesn't really show it, but talks about Hampton's uh, assassination by the police or by the FBI. It's very meta. Very meta. So it, yeah, interesting that, that, you know, in context of Black Lives Matter and everything that's going on, obviously Fred Hampton's story rings a particular chord uh, to this year, uh, given that two of the Best Picture nominees feature that story. One's about it and one includes it as kind of a side story so very and they, they, I know they messed around a little bit with like the timeline and things like that yeah. of course to make it a compelling story I was reading a little bit about that it didn't quite happen so neatly but it did happen while the trial was going on I think maybe Hampton's execution happened after Bobby Seal was oh yeah released um, so anyways it starts off as the Chicago 8 Bobby Seal chairman of the Black Panthers was brought in and as he says in the movie he's like I had nothing to do with them. I don't know them. I have no association with them. He was in Chicago for four hours. He mm -hmm. made a speech. He ate a sandwich. He left. Mm -hmm. Like, he was not there at all. He was not even in the city when the riots happened, so he was not involved. Uh, but as he says, the um, prosecution wanted a black man as one of the uh, 
the uh, defendants so that they would make them look scarier, mm -hmm. uh, that it would feel more threatening to the um, white jury, the predominantly white jury. And the obvious racism only continues because mm -hmm. he is always the worst treated. He's denied a lawyer. He is at one point bound and gagged uh, to the point that even the prosecutor complains about it and mm -hmm. says, this is not right. Mm -hmm. And they eventually just let him off those charges because he's just clearly not involved with this. And it's actually making it harder for the prosecutors to win their case by having him there being so badly treated so eventually he gets let off and that's why it remains uh, it changes to be called the chicago seven and that's why the movie is called the chicago seven because bobby seal should have never been in that case at all mm -hmm. uh, he had nothing to do with it even if there was something to even if there was a conspiracy which there wasn't so that's very interesting and something about this movie uh, i wasn't sure about it when i entered in i knew it was aaron sorkin i knew it'd be interesting and witty and intelligent so i was looking forward to that but Given the world we live in today and given what I'd seen of this trailer uh, for this movie, I was wondering, like, how worthwhile this movie would be a little bit. Because um, it's a bunch of white boys. Because it's a bunch of white boys, right? Uh, there's no denying that this is a very, on the whole, a very white, very male movie. Mm -hmm. And that's fair because the Chicago 7 were all white men. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just historically accurate. There's no reason for it not to be the case. I was wondering, though, in the context of there's a lot of period pieces out. We'll talk a little bit about that later, I think, this year and recently. Um, and there's several movies out this year that deal with the turmoil of the 60s and the politics and the confusion of the 60s, specifically through the lens of race. So there's Judas and the Black Messiah, which we've talked about at length. There's also another movie I really recommend, which I don't think has gotten enough notice as it should have, is The Five Bloods, which is uh, Spike Lee's latest movie, also out on Netflix. Um, that one's quite good, and it deals with the Vietnam War specifically through the lens of race. So given that um, Judas and the Black Messiah and the Five Bloods came out both talking about this time period, both talking about race, I sort of felt like the landscape of the 60s had been pretty well covered through a more challenging, more difficult, more profound angle. And maybe this one was just extraneous and not really very necessary. Um, now, having seen it, I, I think this one is really good. And what I appreciated about it is it deals with the race. It, like, doesn't forget about it. And my favorite part with that is when they find out that Fred Hampton has been killed, the lawyer and Tom Hayden go to talk to Bobby Seale, who's in jail. Um, the lawyer, William Kunstler, he's there, mm -hmm. uh, the defending lawyer. Who's played by the excellent British actor Mark Rylance, uh, who's been in a lot of things. He's mostly, like, a Shakespearean stage actor, but he's been in a lot of things in film and TV lately, too. Kunstler's a very nice man. Yeah, and very smart and very... He's kind of, like, deadpan and chill, but also gets angry sometimes because it's so absurd. And in real life, he was, like, this... He's, like, one of the founders of the ACLU and this huge First Amendment rights guy, so really important, and he's defending them. Um, so he takes Tom to the prison to see Bobby Seale because, of course, Bobby Seale's the only one of them who's in prison. Mm -hmm. And what happens is uh, Bobby Seale says to Tom Hayden, he's like, all you seven, you have the same father, right? And Tom's like, what? And he's like, you all have the same father who told you to get your hair cut and say yes, sir, and stand up straight and be respectful and be on time and all these things. And what you guys are doing, what you guys are protesting is all kind of an F you to your father, right? And Tom Hayden's like, yeah, I guess you could put it that way. And he, and 
Bobby Seal says, and you understand how that's different from a rope on a tree, right? And Tom's like, yes, yes, Ooh, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's just a really good moment to remind us, like, not that, of course, this trial is important. Of course, the protests are very important. Uh, the term, you know, the youth turmoil of the 60s is something that should inspire us, that the young people stood up against uh, what they saw as wrong and fought so hard against it and all and, that. And of course, that trial, that whole trial was very unfair. Mm hmm deeply unfair and deeply problematic. However, the movie acknowledges, and that's what I was afraid it wasn't going to acknowledge, that, you know, whatever problems the white people, you know, the suburban white kids who were dodging the draft were having is nothing compared to the problem that the black people of the time, uh, and even, honestly, of today, are facing. And that's what I was afraid the movie wasn't going to acknowledge, and why I thought Judas and the Black Messiah and Defy Bloods maybe covered this topic, this era, better. Uh, but since it did acknowledge that and it did deal with that, I thought it, it fit in well and then additionally tackled like the protest angle of it, which again is something that's so applicable to today. Yeah. So I ended up really liking the movie and really appreciating it and thinking it found a good niche there um, and wasn't extraneous and, and managed to handle the race topic thoughtfully, uh, which I was afraid it wasn't going to. So I was very pleased with that. Yeah. So another character we haven't mentioned yet is Richard Schultz, who was the assistant federal prosecutor. He was handpicked by the attorney general. He's played by the lovely Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Love him. Love him. He's great. Um, and he's a really interesting character, too, because he is very good at what he does. He is trying his hardest to get a conviction on these guys. He doesn't like them. But at the same time, he doesn't actually believe that they did anything illegal. He points out early on that the the law that they're trying to get these guys on wasn't really meant for this situation and has in fact never been used because he's a really good lawyer and he knows these things. And he consistently points out when the proceedings in the courtroom are just not kosher. They're not right. And he's the one that says, we have a defendant bound and gagged in an American courtroom and this cannot go on. Mm -hmm. That's when he recognize it uh can't take the mistreatment of bobby seal anymore and he actually calls for bobby seal's case to be released because one i mean part of it is he knows it's making it harder for him to win his case because they're being so obviously judge uh stereotyping and judging and discriminating against bobby seal but also he just has a good moral conscience like some of the other problematic the judge is really really problematic here <laughs> uh joseph gordon levitt's boss who's the other prosecutor the attorney general who sent them who chose them and filed this case they're all pretty problematic bad people um who don't seem to care that they're framing innocent people for something just to make a political statement uh, jo uh, schultz joseph gordon levitt's character does seem to care about that he does seem to think this is wrong but he's got a job to do and he's going to do it and he also he just disagrees strongly politically with what the seven stand for uh, and thinks they're vulgar and uh, antisocial and stuff like that. So he's okay with it, but he's got some problems with it. Um, and there's a great moment at the end, which maybe we'll reference, uh, where he kind of stands up and shows respect for them uh, in defiance of some of the other people who've been really discriminatory and bad. So, yeah, he he's a nice character to remind you that, you know, the very left-wing characters here who are obviously our heroes in this movie are not the only good guys like you can have 
good people on both sides, so long as you stick to morals and truth and justice and stuff like that. I think that's really another big strength of this movie is that it shows the nuance on um, both sides of the table. Like among the protesters, among the defendants, they don't all get along. They don't Mm -hmm. all agree. Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman have very different ideas about what their mission is, about what revolution looks like, about what should be done. And they just don't like each other and they fight a lot. And some of their sort of character growth is to understand each other better and to sort of overcome those differences. And so it shows that um, very well. And then also on the other side, uh, the prosecution side, there are also different people. They're not all good or bad. Um, They're not all just these horrible racists, even though some of them are. (laughs) I was really mad at this judge guy. Oh yeah, he's absurd. He's horrible even to the prosecution he interrupts joseph gordon levitt all the time and it's just so obnoxious (laughs) and like i'm just trying to make my opening statements guy like let me talk and do my job goodness that's why this movie was at once fun and also frustrating to watch like Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun because of the dialogue because of the humor because of the great characters it was also frustrating because this trial is so obviously just unfair and bad and the judge is just unreasonable and you just really want you really want a certain outcome Mm -hmm. what's interesting is something they talk about over and over again is that this is a political trial yeah that's what abby hoffman keeps saying it's you know it's politically motivated it's just to punish the left basically uh for for standing up and and protesting and stuff like that uh, and to silence them in this new you know it's coming out of uh, Lyndon Johnson's term has just ended. It was the convention, the uh, 68 convention was when Nixon was elected. So we're moving out of the Kennedy and Johnson years into the Nixon years. There's a shift from uh, the Democrats to the Republicans and the uh, and Nixon and the Republican um, uh, attorney general really kind of want to punish these liberal protesters is, is really what's going on here. So Hoffman recognizes right away this is a political trial. It's a show trial to punish them, basically. And what the lawyer and Tom Hayden keep saying is there's no such thing as a political trial. There's civil trials and criminal trials. That's the only thing. By definition. By definition. But what they all come to realize in the end is this is definitely a political trial. Like, this is for show. This is to punish the enemy. Right? And again, it shows the polarization there, which, again, is what so uh, makes it feel so contemporary, Right. We've gotten away from understanding that how democracy should run is different people with different ideas should not view each other as enemies to be stopped or punished. We should view each other as, you know, people who disagree but have to learn to get along to run a country that has many different kinds of people in it. And unfortunately, we tend to treat each other as enemies and we need to, you know, beat the enemy or punish the enemy um, rather than try to learn how to work with the enemy. And, And we see a lot of that in this movie, which again feels... Yeah, that's just what I see on the news every day. Mm-hmm. And I would say nowadays we would say there is such a thing as a political trial. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Maybe not still in, in academic definition. Shouldn't be, right? Because be. I think a political mm-hmm. trial is inherently unjust if it's there to make a political point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not how the American system of law is supposed to work. But clearly, the American system of law doesn't always work. Did you want to mention Michael Keaton at all? Yeah. Oh, so one other... Um, big big name actor who it's fun uh, I was aware he was in there because I'd heard some of the names ahead of time but he's sort of like a reveal is Michael Keaton uh, Batman Beetlejuice 
uh, the vulture from Spider-Man, you know, big star. Um, he's the former attorney general, Ramsey Clark, uh, who was under President Johnson, who led the investigation into the riots right after they happened and concluded that there was no cause for federal uh, charges. Uh, and then when he leaves office and the new uh, guy under Nixon comes in, then they reverse that and proceed with the trial. And the thing, too, with Ramsey Clark was that he uh, snubbed this tradition of, like, resigning early. He waited until an hour before the attorney general, the new one, uh, was supposed to take office, and then he resigned. And the new attorney general just hated that. He mm -hmm. spent ages talking about it at the beginning. And then that's important later. Because they do bring him in as a witness. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I think it's actually uh, Zach who brings it up. Yeah, he does. He's, He's like so unimportant, except for then he brings up this huge point. It's like, that wouldn't they it could be call. funny if like the attorney general just did this to stick it to Ramsey Clark and uh, Kunstler, the main lawyer, is like, oh, that's who we should call as our witness. Yeah. And so that's very dramatic. And they like go and get him and all the like prosecution are like, you don't have to testify. You shouldn't have to testify like you have a certain level of immunity. And he's like, no, I would like to, though. He's like, I want to. He actually could have said way more than he did. He just, um, unfortunately, it was a little anticlimactic then. But It didn't actually help because they made it so that the jury was sequestered and didn't actually hear any of the former attorney general's testimony. Which was And weren't even told that he was there. And <laughs> Kunstler's like, we brought in the attorney, like the top lawyer in the entire country to testify and they're not even going to know about it. And Ramsey Clark leaves and he's kind of like, well, get started on the appeal. Because <laughs> right. like that didn't help didn't you. Well, but like, Michael Keaton is just so good. He's yeah. so like intense. But he's like calm. eating peanuts like the whole time. Yeah, he's just like, just, like munching away. I got this, guys. And he's such a boss. I love it. Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah, I'm Batman. You know, just... <laughs> doing my thing like i'm not ruffled <laughs> and it really it's a great moment it's what kind of happened several times is they got like these kind of ace in the hole moments where like how could you possibly refute this and then the judge just kind of does out of hand yeah and it just reminds you how unfair the whole situation is and that's one of the biggest ones mm -hmm. so i've been kind of developing this theory um, we've talked a, a number of times already obviously about how this is an intensely contemporary film even though it's a period piece in the 60s and we've also mentioned i've mentioned how obviously how similar there's some similarities to judas and the black messiah also set in the 60s also set in exactly the same year because it's about fred hampton's assassination uh and the five bloods which largely happens uh, well deals with the vietnam war although it's partially set in the present um but what's interesting is we've talked about a number of period pieces on this film already on this podcast already uh we talked about um uh, Wonder Woman. We've talked about what else have we talked about? Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. We've talked about Judas and the Black Messiah. We've talked about Wonder Woman. Um, and if you get into just what else is coming out, other ones we haven't talked about, there's just been lots and lots of period films. There always are. Uh, but in the past couple of years, there's just been an awful lot of period films. Um, you know, I, last year there was like Joker, which was set in the eighties and little women, uh, yep. which is in the 1800s. Uh, and this year 
several of the other um, Oscar nominees in big movies are period pieces. Manx a period piece. Um, so there's been lots of period pieces. And kind of my theory about that is that the world feels so messy and chaotic right now that we don't quite know how to talk about the present in the present. And there are good movies that are doing that, like Nomadland, for example, or Promising Young Woman. Uh, although even Promising Young Woman is kind of a little bit of period piece because it harkens back a lot to like the early 2000s and stuff mm -hmm. like that. That's kind of where the inciting incident of that story happens. Um, but I think we the world is so messy right now, and that's not something that's unique to this time period. I think there's lulls and peaks, and we're at a peak moment of messiness right now, kind of like we were in the 60s. Um, but uh, since the world's so messy right now, we don't quite know how to talk about it with now, so we use the past to talk about it. And I think the 60s in particular feel extremely relatable to right now because a lot of the same things were happening. You know, there's the racial tension, there's protests, there's a lot of young people speaking up there's a lot of political division there's a war that people are deeply divided about uh, there's all kinds of these things that feel very relatable to now um i've even heard people say uh that we're kind of in the second um civil rights era right now uh, with the black lives matter protests and things like that so that's my theory and i think that's why we've had you know a number of period pieces especially dealing with the 60s in vietnam and uh, civil rights and stuff like that in this year alone because it feels so connected and it's a better it's a good way to talk about now without talking about now and I don't think we quite know how to talk about now just straightforward right now because it is so complex and messy and give it a couple years I'm sure we'll see you know stuff talking about the pandemic and all that um, although I imagine a lot of it will not be directly about the pandemic it will be couched in metaphor and in similar circumstances and things like that too soon too soon right um but yeah that's my my working theory for why period p films are always popular but i think especially so right now because they're just one of the best ways to deal with the current messiness of the world in a way that we can understand and wrap our heads around because when things are already over we have a little bit more perspective on them and since we're still living in the middle of it right now obviously it's hard to know where things are going to go or what's going to happen yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Just the the certainty of of historical fact and of what happened and how things turned out and also just learning about people from the past, um, especially through a movie like this that's like a profile that kind of takes you right into their lives or like Judas and the Black Messiah that uh, shows you people that you maybe would have never heard of otherwise um, are just really, really good and really helpful and they help you identify and see that you know, people in the past are not so different mm -hmm. than we are right now, even mm -hmm. though it feels like a very different time, especially after the uh, technological revolution. Mm -hmm. I think it really helps to see these stories and see there were good people who stood up for what was right. And, you know, they can inspire us to do the same. Mm -hmm. One of the really lovely things about the movie is one thing that kind of keeps coming up is... Um, one of the main characters, Rennie Davis, uh, he keeps like a list of all the young men killed in Vietnam because like it plays on the TV each night, like who's been killed. And he, he's made a list during the whole trial. And what he keeps saying and what some of them keep saying is this trial shouldn't be about us. If it's going to be a political trial, which it is, then it should be about, you know, the issues we care about and are protesting against and stuff like that. This is our platform. This is our chance. 
Um, and some of them feel a little differently. They kind of feel like, well, we just got to get ourselves out of this situation. And Tom Hayden is a good guy who cares a lot about protesting and stuff. But for much of the movie, he's sort of conflicted. He's sort of like, okay, this isn't going to just be a pointless stick it to the man kind of thing. That's not going to help anybody. We need to get ourselves out of here. We need to save ourselves, kind of. He's got a big self-preservation sort of instinct. Mm -hmm. And he just wants to get out and he wants to somehow kind of get political office, which mm -hmm. he does eventually. Yep. He becomes a representative in California for many years. Um, and the kind of the biggest clash within the seven is kind of between him and Abby. Abby, who really thinks this is the time to kind of make our statement, and Tom, who thinks we got to get out of this. We got to kind of save ourselves because um, he thinks he doesn't really believe it's a political trial. He doesn't believe they have any power here or can actually make any statement that can do any good. So they have to get out of here so that they can resume doing the good work is more or less what he thinks. Abby tells him at one point, it's a revolution, Tom. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Mm -hmm. There's so many good quotes and Abby has just loaded with them. <laughs> so many. I love it when they are like showing them like march down to the police station to like get somebody out of jail and Allen Ginsberg, the poet is there. Oh yeah. He's like chanting and and like the undercover cops who were there were talking about like Allen Ginsberg, the poet was there giving a war cry. And Abby's doing his stand-up, and he's like, yeah, Ginsburg sending out some kind of jungle signal to beat poets to come and pelt the police with blank verse, <laughs> which I just love as a poet guy. Uh, so, yeah, just lots and lots of funny things he says. Uh, and this part, we're like, with friends like these, and they talk about how there were so many undercover cops right. mixed in there. There were like an, a there were a concerning number of undercover cops in that movie. Oh, like, yeah. I don't know if this, how true this was to like the real record. Like I'd be interested to find out. But there's like I don't know 15 people that testify against them that they could have sworn were like just local business people or reporters or just like a plumber or uh, like members a park of ranger. Their, well, like people members that they yeah. thought were members of the protest. Yeah, like, that they thought were there and stuff. And uh, at one point, Zach says, uh, "Do you think it's possible that there were seven protesters in Chicago and a hundred thousand undercover cops <laughs> and zach coming in clutch with the funny quotes so good <laughs> he plays no role in the plot but he's got a lot of the best lines he really does <laughs> uh, so yeah lots of good stuff there but what's i think kind of the most moving moment well two of the most moving moments in the movie are towards the end they keep saying that like tom hayden is going to be able to like testify because he's like the only one who's like level-headed and calm enough not to like freak out and insult the judge they've all gotten counts of contempt mm -hmm. against the court by the way they've all kind of spoken out of turn especially because the judge was so ridiculous that they just couldn't really help but talk back to him even uh david dillinger who who was very calm for most of it ends up getting really frustrated at one point and gets a account of contempt and tom hayden's really the only one who's kept his nose clean mm-hmm so they're going to have him testify, but it turns out he said some incriminating things that maybe sparked the riot, uh, and Kunstler doesn't think he can testify. And then at that point, Abby kind of sticks up for him, and he, he says, like, oh, I understand why you said that, because you said this in the Port Huron statement that you helped write. And it turns out that Abby, who everybody kind of thinks is an idiot, especially Tom Hayden. Especially Tom. Uh, it turns out that Abby's, like, really smart and has read everything Tom's ever written and like really respects Tom 
academically. Um, and that really kind of blows Tom away. And he has this lovely, like, humble moment where he's like, you know what, Abby should actually be the one to testify. And Abby does end up being the one of them that testifies. And he does really well. Mm-hmm. And, like, he quotes the Bible and gives some, like, very thoughtful things. And he says stuff like, um, you know, when things are unjust, you have to have a revolution to put somebody new in power, which is, like, a really scary thing to say. And they're like, and how do you have a peaceful revolution? And he's like, well, in this country, we do it every four years. Yeah. Um, and he just says some really lovely, thoughtful things, which, of course, again, don't really help uh, in the trial because they do get charged. Um Although the historically and what the note what the like uh, end cards tell us in the end the trial gets dismissed uh, in appeals and things like that so they do you know justice is served in the end but in the initial trial they do all get charged mm-hmm. um, except Bobby Seal who's let go earlier on um, so when they're finally being sentenced um, so yeah first of all that's lovely that there's kind of this sort of reconciliation between Abby and Tom which has kind of been this, one of the central conflicts within the seven of them just kind of hating each other and being so different. And it turns out actually they can respect each other. And uh, Abby can be the sarcastic loudmouth weirdo, but also can be really thoughtful and intelligent and respectful too. Um, and I think that's, you know, that really interesting mix of emotions from him is probably why Cohen uh, is the one who's gotten several nominations for like best supporting actor out of all of them. Cause they all give really tremendous performances, but I can understand why Sasha Baron Cohen was given that. Uh, also, like his very impressive Boston accent the whole time is yeah. just wonderful. It's very good. Which I know isn't how he really talks, but it's perfect. Um, so that's really good. And then they do get charged in the end. And then Tom Hayden again. He's always kind of seemed to maybe be out for himself, whereas the others have been more willing to like make a statement. And when he's given the chance to kind of like state their case at the end, and the judge says, if you are clear and succinct and polite uh, and brief, then we'll give you a lighter sentence. And that's kind of what you would expect him to jump at. Instead, he reads off this long list that Rennie's been keeping of all the soldiers who've been killed in Vietnam. 4,000 names. 4,000 names. And he reads them into the records and like everybody, including Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, stand up and like respect for the fallen and stuff like that. And it's this bold moment of like, yeah, at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's about what we came here about in the first place and let's make our statement and remember why we're here, which is actually for the young boys being killed in Vietnam and what we believe to be an unjust war. And it's mm-hmm. a really lovely moment of solidarity amongst the whole seven and that none of them being selfish uh, and thinking about the greater good there. And then at that point, the movie ends with them being sentenced. But as we are told, uh, they go on to have their case dismissed in appeals. So they ultimately don't end up in jail. Or at least not for very long. They probably do go to jail for a little bit in between. Yeah. While the appeals is being worked on. So it's a very moving, powerful ending. It's very good. Good kind of sacrificial moment and a good good character development for the character of Hayden. So Andy, um, just kind of summing up, what were your feelings about the film? Oh, I loved it. I think it was really good. I think... It was a lot of fun to watch, even if, like I said, it was frustrating at times, but it was just, it was really entertaining and also really enlightening, uh, which are kind of our favorite kind of movie yep, in a exactly. way. Like it wasn't like a bummer, you know? <laughs> it's more <laughs> fun than, uh, you know, Promising Young Woman or Judas oh, and yeah. the Black Messiah, right? <laughs> yeah. You're like, haha, they're funny. They said witty things. Right. Not, oh man, people are dead now. Right. 
Right. And so it was really, really cool um, just to see everybody, all the good actors, and to hear, um, again, about a story that I didn't know a lot about, had heard maybe a little bit about, um, but not a lot. And so I loved, loved learning about all of it. I loved going and kind of Googling and learning more about mm -hmm. it later. And yeah, I'm really loving the period pieces too yep. um, lately. Um, they've been really good. So I think this is a really good movie for really anybody. Um, some of the, the, the last two movies that we've reviewed, um, I think are really good, really important. Maybe not for everybody, especially mm -hmm. in terms of like the content rating. I think this one maybe is a little bit lighter on the content rating. There's a little language. There's definitely some F-bombs in there. Definitely a little bit. So I think it like, is an R rating. Maybe. But just for a couple F-bombs, it's, it's definitely mm -hmm. less, yeah, more accessible to more people than the last two. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, you know, doesn't mean it's not good or anything. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it was really, really good. I think it's important for a lot of people to see just... Because of the perspective, because of the nuance, um, because of what you'll learn from it, and also because you'll have a good time. Mm -hmm. You will. You'll laugh, you'll cry. It moved me, Bob. Larry the Cucumber. What a great, great critic. That great sage. <laughs> Not Sa a berry. Is sage a vegetable? <laughs> no, but neither is Larry. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think, Aaron? Does the trial of the Chicago 7 get the AP stamp of approval? I think so. I'd say it's AP approved. 100%. So one last thing we should mention, kind of the tagline for this movie, which you hear a lot in the trailer, uh, if you've seen the trailer, uh, and you hear people chanting a couple different times in the movie, is the whole world is watching. You know, you had something to kind of mention. Yeah. So they they say that because everyone is watching. A lot of people are watching the DNC. A lot of people are watching the protests and the trial and what's all happening with that and which way the the Justice Department and the government is going to go. And I think part of that is that uh, the Vietnam War was one of the most visible wars. It's the first televised war. Um, and so people got to see just how horrible it was mm -hmm. more than ever before. And that's part of why there were so many protests. And now it really does feel like the whole world is watching Anytime something big happens because we have the internet and you can read a news article minutes after something has happened and things that happen across the globe you get to know about and also other people in other countries get to know about us and mm -hmm. what we're doing and cell phone videos. Yep. There are cell phone videos everywhere. Anything that, you know, anything that happens in public can be recorded and it just really does feel even more so than before uh, that the whole world is watching. So I think that's just something really important to um, remember when we think about uh, how we talk about what's going on. When we think about um, what we're doing about it. Um, we talked last episode about being being a revolutionary and, and what that means and what it costs. And I think, um, you know, Aaron and I talk a lot about different causes and and what we think is important but you know how many people are actually willing to do what the chicago seven did what the black panthers did um, what martin luther king did and mm. to put everything on the line i think there's a line where abby hoffman it's it's unclear where whether he's serious or not but he's asked like how much how much money would you take what what would be your your cost 
um, to give up this this whole thing. And he says, my cost is my life. Mm-hmm. And I think within, I don't know about the real Abby Hoffman, but I think the way Sasha Baron Cohen plays him, he's being absolutely serious there. Yeah. And yeah, I think, you know, I'd like to believe that I'd be brave enough to stand up and do the right thing in the defiance of the system if I was in that position. But I wouldn't be surprised if I was like Tom Hayden, but not Tom Hayden who had the growth at the end to stick it to him, but rather the one who was mostly concerned with himself. And I could make all the good arguments about, I got to get out of here so that I can continue the fight on the outside. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. And I'm not sure I would have been bold enough to be in the protest in the first place. Um, so yeah, that's important to remember kind of thinking about being a revolutionary last episode in this episode you know we can watch the movies can we walk the walk yeah and that doesn't mean i don't think everyone has to just drop whatever they're doing drop their whole lives and become an activist but i think we should remember uh just to think about what we're doing what we're saying Mm -hmm. uh how we're how we're coming across especially when everything is online everything you put online everything you say everything you do Mm -hmm. that you put online is there forever and a lot of people can see it. So as we go forth, we're going to watch more great movies. We're going to just live our lives. But I think we should just all remember. The, the whole, whole world, world is watching. watching. The whole, whole world, world is watching. watching. The whole, whole world, world is watching. watching. See you guys later.